So last week I went to get a smoothie for lunch, and I won't tell you the name of the place, but it, it does rhyme with Smoothie King. <laughs> so I go into Smoothie King. It's not that crowded. There's like seven or eight of us in there. Um, and I finally get up to the counter to make my order. And as I make my order, I get this sense, this hunch that there's some tension among the staff team behind the counter. Now, the reason I get this hunch is because one of the staff people is having it out with the customer across the counter. So that's that. So I make my order, and just before he uh, punches the order in and gives me the total, the little receipt machine next to uh, the cash register just starts spitting out these receipts, maybe like 12 of them. They're all kind of connected, like perforated. They're different but it's like a CVS kind of length, you know what I mean? And I don't know what's going on, but one of the staff people says under his breath, online orders. Those wily mobile order efficiency experts. Just order it up. Just sit on the app. Make your, you can just go in. You can walk right past all the serfs and peasants waiting in line. Don't you love these people? Maybe you're one of these people, that's why you're quiet. <laughs> but if I go into Starbucks and I'm waiting on my, you know, coffee that is so easy, just turn around and put it in there, I have to go wait down at the counter and there's like 17 cups of some kind of thing, and then in walks the person, you know, excuse me, picking up their, yes, your mobile order is ready, Ariel. So, but anyway, that's a digression. So they're mobile orders. So I say to the guy behind the counter, are those ahead of me? And he said to me, we'll make yours. I was like, oh, well, thank you. So I make my order, I pay, I go down to the other end, and time kind of just stands still. And then one of the employees begins to tell all of the employees something quite loud. It's a meeting. We're all in this meeting now. And this is what he says. Attention, team. We make more money with the online orders than we do with the in-store customer. Now, I don't know if that's true, but we're all, I mean, everybody actually looked up from their phones. This was a moment, okay? And we make, and he said, if, and I'm quoting here, if people leave the store because they're tired of waiting, so be it. We make more money with the mobile orders anyway. That's just the way it is. To which I said under my breath, the words of Bruce Hornsby, but don't you believe it. Have you ever felt like you didn't belong somewhere? <laughs> like that you were not needed whatsoever? Or maybe that you were just in the way? You ever felt that way? like you were being left out. This is really just a two-person game, that kind of thing. Or like you feel overlooked. I love the line from Mrs. Potter's Lullaby, The Counting Crows, where the singer laments, I never know anyone at the party, but I'm always the host. You ever feel that way? Of course you have. I have. I hope that you have. I hope I'm not alone in that. We've all been in situations where we feel unneeded, pushed to the side, overlooked, 
and so on. And we hear something like today's passage that Taino just read for us, and it bothers us because this kind of stuff isn't supposed to be happening in uh, the church, and that is true. But we know that this kind of thing happens in every arena of life. It's not just in one particular place. It's just a human thing. It happens in your place of work where you feel like you're not in on decisions or changes or no one asked your opinion, even if you've been there forever. It happens in your friend group. I know it happens in your friend group because it happens in my friend group. You know, you ever feel like you're always the one texting and you say, thank you, I got an amen over here. (laughs) And you ask that question like, I wonder what would happen if I just stopped reaching out. You ever ask that question? Sadly, I can tell you what will happen. Nothing. Because it happens. It even happens in your family. You know? Maybe you're like the youngest of seven. And you just wrote, wrote, you, you raised yourself. Overlooked. It happens. It happens in every single arena of life. It appears to be part of the human condition. Uh, this propensity to cause maybe unintentional injury to people by living as though they didn't exist or worse, as if they didn't matter. If people leave the store because they're tired of waiting, so be it. We make more money with the mobile orders anyway. It's just the way it is. James writes, my brothers and sisters do not claim the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while you are showing partiality, favoritism. If a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in and you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, right here, we got a seat for you. Have you not caused judgment to come on yourselves with these kind of evil thoughts, James says. If you've never read James's letter, you have to kind of do it wearing a seatbelt. He comes in heavy, he comes in fast, he comes in hot. He shows his hand quite early in this chapter. The issue he is addressing is identified with this word partiality or favoritism, as other versions say. The Greek here is very interesting. It means to uh, lift up the face of someone, to show special attention to someone, to evaluate someone based on what we might just call surface level things, like social status or economics or education, the list is endless, just surface stuff. Whatever we deem superior in our social circle, if we find that in someone's life, we lift them up over the rest. Now James says this, he has to because this is happening, it's a thing. It's an issue in these ancient church gatherings. The implication that this sort of social classification, the implication from James is it's out of place. It's out of sync with what the church is supposed to be. So he has to say something. He has to address it. It's happening. Now, most of the New Testament is male. It's correspondence. If we have all of these letters that were written to Christian communities across first century Uh, the first century Mediterranean world. And what is so often the case in these letters, among other subjects, is the presence of some sort of tension 
uh, around the ancient church learning to find its way as a place where all these different kinds of people can be welcomed in. It doesn't matter what letter you're reading, you're going to come across that topic in almost every single one of them. Diversity and inclusion, they look good on paper. It makes sense. But in real life, it's hard work. And the ancient church was in the middle uh, or really on the front end of this God-sized project to be an alternative community within the world. Read through the New Testament letters and just notice how many times the writers call their readers to practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. This is what James is doing as well. He's pointing at the problem of exclusion based on surface level things and he calls his readers to go against the cultural norm because again, this isn't just a church thing, it's a human thing to go against that norm and to practice hospitality and community at the highest level. Church isn't supposed to be this way, but humans, we are this way. And the church is supposed to push back on that. That's why church is a group thing. It's not a singular thing. You can't do it in the woods by yourself because it's a movement against the human condition. It takes a community to say, this will be different than what the world is. James reminds his readers that everyone has a seat at the table of Jesus. And James is speaking into a very particular situation. But if we zoom out, uh, what we see and feel in his words is something of a wider norm that he's suggesting something of a larger ideal for the church, and it's this. The church is to be a place where everyone can find the community and the friendships that are needed for the ongoing formation of their faith and their well-being. Now, in James's world, the poor, although in many cases the majority of the populace, the poor were still outsiders. Not much has changed in this regard, But in the letter, they stand as this real-world example of people working hard to get in and wanting to get in. And why not? Jesus was known to be an advocate for the poor. His teachings included them. His work included them. His behavior towards them was proof uh, of his love and care for them. Why wouldn't they want to get in and have a seat at that table? So if we look at it in that respect, James is speaking to that situation, but it's not limited to the poor. Every human being desires to be part of a community where friendships of grace and support and trust are all present, where we are seen not for what's on the surface of our lives, not even for what's in our past, but as people who have the deep mark of the divine on our lives people made in the image of God and who are all invited to sit at the table with Jesus. Amen? That's the push back against the way we humans are. That's why we need to do that together. I'd say one of the most or more famous rooms in a church building is the fellowship hall. Did you grow up in a church that had a fellowship hall? 
Yeah. Growing up, I remember uh, Wednesday night dinners in the fellowship hall. Remember those? Really bad food, you know? Ham with a pineapple on it. Some tea that had been sitting around since 8 a.m. But we'd hurry in, man. We'd grab the food coming in from cross-country practice or whatever and eat real quick and then go to youth group. And if you've ever been to a church dinner, there's no reserved seating. So you oftentimes, as a teenager, would end up at a table with, um, uh, with people maybe you didn't know, but more than likely with people who were, shall we say, like over the hill. You know, So there we are, chatting it up with people 40, 50, 60 years older. It's wonderful. I also remember the fellowship hall as being a place a venue of like really bad church talent shows. You ever been to one of those? Maybe not, I don't know. Maybe your church was merciful. <laughs> but ours, we had them and like kids would get up and play guitars and sing terrible songs and people cheered like it was the best thing they ever heard. And I've been a music critic since I could listen to music. And I'm just like, is this what we have? Is this, is this how we're changing the world? <laughs> No offense. The fellowship hall was also a place where uh, wedding receptions could happen, turning it into a room of celebration and joy, but it also doubled as a place for a meal after something like a funeral, turning it into a space where there's a sense of shared pain and for many, the very room in which first steps of healing are taken. I've been to so many funerals in different places and there's something very powerful about making our way to the fellowship hall and just sitting down and eating. And for those who are grieving, it may be the first meal they've had in days. It's a powerful room. When we were looking to buy this building, um, we were pretty excited when it came with a big room on the lower level. And off that room was a space for a kitchen, which we now have. Sanctuary is nice and all, but you're not a real church until you're serving food because the fellowship hall is where things get practical, right? It's really nice too. We had never, you know, we were used to meeting spaces and event spaces. I mean, we were in a church building-ish uptown for 10 years, but if you were part of that, like, it was no church building. It was some kind of weird Star Wars brutalist, like, <laughs> no right angles, nothing worked. The hallways were trap doors. Like, it was, I don't count it as the church, but it, it did not have a fellowship hall. And when we were moving from space to space and looking at different buildings, it's, uh, we never really thought that we would buy a church building. And, but there was something nice about like, you know what's cool about a church building? It's made for what churches do. It's like, you know what, we could use a fellowship hall. It has one. We need a nursery. It's got two of them. Like there's all these things that you just need as a church. And it, lo and behold, what do you know? Church buildings have them. I'm a big believer in spiritual formation and growth and the knowledge of God and the Bible and theology and all that stuff, and we'll talk about some of that next Sunday. But it's not the only thing the church is purposed for. The church is not actually supposed to be a content machine. 
It is most of all a table. It's a table. It's a place where people gather to be reminded that they are made in the image of God, that they are loved by Jesus, and that they have a seat in his kingdom. Church historian Leonard Sweet writes, the story of Christianity didn't actually take shape behind pulpits or on altars or in books. No, the story of Christianity takes shape around tables as people face one another as equals, telling stories, sharing memories, and enjoying food with one another. Every Sunday morning, we have four people who are scheduled to serve on what we call host team. And their job is pretty simple, hand out bulletins, help new people find their way around the building, and be nice. Two of those people stand under a tent outside specifically for new people. Maybe you've been to that tent. Have you ever been a new person in the church? Of course you have. You weren't born here. (laughs) We're only 18 years old. It's strange, isn't it? On the Sundays that we don't hold services here uh, and we have those weekends throughout the year, our family will just attend another church here in the city. The rhythm is important to us, but it's also a good practice that reminds us of what it's like to be new, what it's like to be an outsider in some other church's worship service. I've been to churches where they're not prepared for new people. I, uh, the two, two times ago when we didn't have a church service, uh, I went to the church uh, near our building, just walked to it. I don't know, 12 of us in there, they were not expecting me. They thought they had like grown exponentially. Signed me up for the softball team and everything. You know, it's one of those situations. He's young. Get him. How's your underarm? You know? Okay. I recommend that you do the same on those Sundays. It's good for you to put yourself in situations that feel awkward. But four people wearing host team lanyards on Sunday is not enough. It also doesn't mean that you and I can roam the building detached from the need to be hospitable and welcoming. All of us are on host team. All of us. I'm guessing the church that James was talking to in his letter didn't have a host team. If they did, they weren't any good at it. They had fallen off mission and back into what was easy, which was to just be blind to those around them or worse, a lack of awareness to those in need of community. All of us are on host team. We make room for everyone because everyone needs a seat at the table of Jesus. And here's why, and I want you to hear this. We never know what God is doing in the life of someone. And we never know how we might play a role in that story. Years ago when our church was uptown, we did something Uh, awkward after worship services. We just had chairs, not pews. uh, And I just decided at the very last moment that we would just have people circle up and pray. It's awkward. But what was very interesting was someone uh, was visiting for the first time that day and had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And a relationship was formed in that circle of prayer all the way to the death of that lady. You never know. People walk into church buildings for many reasons. And one of those is a desire to be known and loved, 
to be welcomed and included. And I found that most people leave churches not over doctrine, but over fading and lost relationships. It's rarely theological, it's almost always social, always. When I talk to people who have drifted, it's because there's no connections anymore. Pro tip from your pastor. If someone's only relational connection here in this building is me or Lindsay, it's doomed. It becomes easier over time to drift out because church is people and people need to be seen and known and that falls on all of us. We are all on host team. I don't know what our church's legacy will be in this town and I honestly don't think about it all that much. But if I had my pick of the things that we would be known for, one of those would be that we were the nicest church in town. Does that sound good? Does that sound doable? It's totally doable. We can't do everything, but we can be nice. We can be welcoming. We can make room for people. As I close, I want to read this passage uh, from a book by Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar, and he writes these words. It's lengthy, so just sit, sit still and listen, and then we'll close with communion. He writes, Jesus turned routine meals into kingdom realities, which means a new society was being formed around evening dinner tables, and people got converted at those tables with Jesus. Moreover, which is what scholars say, moreover, Jesus' disciples learned more about him and the kingdom of God every evening sitting down together with him. If you were invited for dinner, you probably would have heard Jesus respond to questions by telling stories which we call parables. What would have struck any Roman higher-ups was that Jesus' tables were mixed. Jews of status sat with Jews of no status. Saints sat with sinners, the former learning they were the latter and the latter learning that they could become the former. Tax collectors sat with zealots, for the table with Jesus was a place of grace. At the Last Supper, Jesus connected that meal to the dinners that they had been having and to, and to the dinner that they would eventually have in the coming kingdom. He said, quote, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The routine meals of the past became a meal of memory. And that last connecting supper was to be remembered whenever Jesus' followers gathered. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, do this in remembrance of me. And so the early Christians celebrated the communion in connection with the dinners and the homes that they had been having. And so we need to convert our imaginations today, learning to eliminate the fancy cups and the plates and the white linens and the tasteless portions of bread and drips of grape juice and the oddity of how we do communion. We also need to convert our practice, learning to let our table fellowship with one another morph into remembering the Lord.